And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. So here in this uh, 2023, 2024 kind of vibe, we've got technology that does so many different things. And today we're going to talk about tech for mental well-being. Yes, it exists and it is strong. Now, before I introduce today's guest, today's show is uh, powered by Fullscale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult and Fullscale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has a platform to help you manage that team, go to fullscale.io to learn more. With me today, I've got Nick Mercadante, and Nick is the founder and CEO at Pursue Care. It's a mental health technology company. You can learn more about his company at pursuecare.com. There's a link for that in the show notes. Go Scroll on down, folks. Scroll on down and click that so you can get a little bit of context of what we're talking about today. Straight out of Middletown, Connecticut, where I believe it's as cold as it is where I am today. Nick, welcome to Startup Hustle. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Straight out of Middletown doesn't sound super exciting, but um, yeah. Thanks for having Knowing me. what I know about Connecticut, that's probably like a 2 million person town or something crazy like that. <laughs> it I don't know. all of Connecticut. Middletown yeah. is kind of yeah. our, our vibe. <laughs> is it literally in the middle of Connecticut? It is as it sounds. It's in the Even middle better. of Connecticut. Yeah. And that yeah. keeps it, that, that takes it easy on folks like me that if I had to look at a map and, uh, and, and pick Connecticut out, I, 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 if I get three tries, I'm going to find it, but I always get that messed, messed up or mixed up or whatever. Well, yeah. you know, let, let Nick, let's, let's just get this conversation started with a little bit more about your backstory and what brought you to becoming the, the founder and CEO at Pursue Care. Yeah. So, um, look, my backstory is, uh, I'm, I'm kind of a healthcare lifer. I think I've tried to get out at varying times. I'm a, you know, attorney by background. So at one point I thought yeah, I'll go to law school, maybe become a litigator and working in healthcare. It just, I don't know. It sucks you back in. I, I got my start in healthcare. Um, really, you know, just because my parents, uh, both worked in healthcare. My my mom worked in labs. My dad is a pharmacist by trade. Uh, he's also an entrepreneur. So when I was younger, he uh, you know he started his own pharmacy, and um, so I got my start sweeping floors and stocking shelves and ringing the cash register, right? And and kind of went from there. And I think that the cool thing uh, about working in healthcare is um, you feel good. You feel like you're helping somebody every day when you. Uh, get out of bed. Uh, it's hard, but um, it's one of those things where you feel like there's a purpose behind what you're doing. Uh, so I got that bug and, um, you know, kind of never looked back. And so I've, I've stuck with it ever since. I'm at pursuecare.com, which once again, those of you listening should click the link in the show notes and go 
check it out. It says right here in the banner, personalized virtual addiction treatment right on your phone. What does that look like? I mean, are we tackling the opioid crisis, anything adjacent to it or like addiction in general? Yeah. Well, so look, I think opioids are the biggest kind of top of mind um, issue with addiction in this country. Um, but not the only thing uh, right now. And it always surprises people when I say it, maybe it'll surprise your audience. Maybe it won't. There are 48 million people in this country that meet the criteria for diagnosis of substance use disorder. That's not just opioids, that's alcohol, it's stimulants, uh, methamphetamine, cocaine, et cetera, uh, 48 million people. So this is an overwhelming problem. Uh, Pursue Care was designed to help to solve that problem through a combination of technology and services. So what we do at our core is we deliver virtual health services, telemedicine, to patients with substance use disorders. Opioids is the big one, but we treat all substance use disorders through a combination of medical care, uh, therapy and counseling, and then also um, what's known as case management, where we help patients with resources around their healthcare, things like um, housing issues or taking care of their kids that might affect their ability to stay in treatment. So that's at the core of what we do. Um, but there's also a mental health component to substance use disorder. So a lot of what we do is also psychiatric and mental health care uh, to help with underlying conditions. And sometimes it's kind of a chicken and egg. And we do all of that. We deliver it through a smartphone app uh, to patients that are usually referred to us by local hospitals, health systems, uh, and community health centers. Let me get this math right. So your total addressable market of 48 million people is roughly one in six to one in seven people in America. Yeah. And it's getting shocking. That's a shocking number. I (laughs) I did. I got to say, I didn't realize that. And I mean, I knew that there was there many, many issues with this and I've been affected by them myself and around others. It's been a long time since then. That road to recovery is rough. Um, And, you know, so thank you for the help with that. But that is a wild number. 48 million people is, is uh, roughly how much of that is the opioid problem? So um, about 35%, give or take. So a third? Yeah, about a third of it. Um, And, you know, there's varying levels of acuity, severity when it comes down to um, defining that. There's also a lot of overlap. There's what's called polysubstance use. So somebody who uses a bunch of different drugs all at once. Um, And... um, you know, a lot, it, it, a lot comes from mental health conditions, uh, trauma, right? Um, you know, issues in your past. Uh, but there's also a ton that happened uh, that was a direct result of, of poor pain management and ending up um, with becoming opioid dependent and then maybe losing access to those medications or just taking hold. And that's where the opioid crisis really uh, has kicked that up. So the numbers are getting worse. Um, they're not getting better. Uh, I don't think COVID helped either. Are the numbers are actually getting worse? Much worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a, so the, the, the thesis statement here when it comes to pursue care is that, that, okay. So first off, let me back up. So, uh, my brother-in-law was an ER doctor for a while. He doesn't do it anymore, but you know, he always used to say, he's like, you know, homeless people come in, they've got a smartphone. Yep. Um, you know, like, I mean, everybody has, has, 
access via phone. So the so is the the main thesis here is that by making access to help and care literally at the at your fingertips, that more people will uh, actually engage in it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. One of our main things that we were trying to accomplish when we started off and we, and we launched, uh, you know, the, the concept for Pursue Care came from actually when I was, um, I was working in the skilled nursing space and we were, I was working with a company that was doing behavioral health integration. So on-site behavioral health and skilled nursing facilities. And we started to see this influx 2015, 16, around that time of people with opioid use disorder ending up in nursing home beds, which is not where they belong, but they were get, kind of getting bounced around. Like they bounce out of, you know, your brother's ED, for instance, and nobody has a bed for them. They end up in a nursing home bed. And so we started kind of working upstream of that and going, well, what's actually going on here? Why are people falling through the cracks? And really what it came down to is lack of access to treatment, right? They just don't have it. And it's not even just in rural areas, but it's pronounced. It's bad in rural areas. If you don't have treatment within an hour of where you live, and then when, it, when you actually go to the clinic, it takes two hours when you're there. How are you going to hold down a job, take care of your kids, everything else? So I, I thought about it. And I said, well, we have to make treatment easier or as easy as getting drugs. And if you, everybody has a smartphone, it kind of starts with that. And that's where the concept for Pursue Care came from. Yeah, the th- I think one of the things that I've learned when it comes to like recovery and stuff like that is, well, you know, for the most for the most part, people that are addicted to something, re- whether it's video games or opioids or sex or whatever, usually don't want to be right? right, and they're usually fighting a pretty tough battle that presents anywhere from daily, if not hourly, if like minutely, if that's a word, um, you know, uh, opportunities to fail. Right. And the problem is, is, and this is why, you know, organizations like AA will give someone a sponsor. It's like, call the minute you're having a problem. Right. Right. And that's the problem with, with a lot of structured care. And like, if you've tried to make a doctor's appointment sometimes, like, I mean, I don't need your, like in the mind of the addict or the person that's struggling, they don't need help 14 days from now. Like they're in the middle of something big at the moment. Yeah. And, and it only takes one of those slip ups to put these, to put addicts on a very slippery slope that goes, I mean, literally a slippery slope. It's steep and it can get ugly in a hurry. So yeah, I like that. I like the access to care there as, and, and as you mentioned, I hadn't really given too much thought it, it just today. I mean, th- thinking about some of this to like the effects of, you know, being far away. Right. from help or, or whatever. And so like, I mean, yeah. So I, once again, I commend you for what you're building because like the telemedicine thing is, is pretty cool. You know, if you can get on, the thing I've learned is that people in crisis often just need to be heard for a minute and they need someone to say, Hey, look, you're going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Just take a deep breath, you know, like, look, the challenge is there, but whatever. So yeah, if you can make that better, cheaper, faster. Um, yeah. Then I'm looking at your website. You're talking about, you know, 90% of patients continue in their treatment after 30 days, 75% continue after 90 days with national industry benchmarks, you know, half of that. So you're on to something. It's working. Look, I, I think so much is, you know, 
people with substance use disorder, you don't start out in crisis. Yeah. Very, very rarely. It's, it usually takes five, 10 years and then it yeah. calcifies and it gets really bad and you fall outside of healthcare, right? And then you end up in a crisis and you end up in the emergency room. And that's the first time you get an intervention of, hey, there's a path to better health and maybe it's a rehab stay or something else. But if you're, like I said, you know, if you, if it's going to take you out of your job or away from your kids or you have to drive and you don't have a car, it doesn't matter. It's not going to stick, right? And if you're in a community where you don't have the social supports to, to help you through, then at those times, 1030 at night on a Friday, when things are tough or your friends are out drinking or whatever, um, that's when you need somebody, right? And so what I'm most proud of with what we do is um, we fit the the lives of our patients. We're there when they need us. We do most of our sessions in the evening. There's a reason for that. People are out of their out of work. That's when they have issues, right? Um, that they want to talk to somebody about. And I think we help bring patients back into healthcare, right? Now you can see a medical provider on your terms, um, a, a really good one. And sometimes it's in a rural you know, town in Kentucky where you don't have that option locally. And then I think then the third thing is that, you know, and kind of getting back to like the, the topic of apps for, for mental health and well-being is we actually work with our patients to teach them coping mechanisms, how to handle cravings, how to um, uh, understand what your body is going through as you're taking medication uh, to help treat your substance use disorder. And all of that is forms of what's known as cognitive behavioral therapy. And we've delivered that um, digitally through our app and, and through partnering, partnering uh, digital therapeutic apps to our patients so that they can, you know, they have something that they can uh, engage with in between sessions. So they're not waiting 14 days to talk about it, you know? Um, so that's, those are things I just think that this modern age of healthcare and virtual health, that's what it's opening the door for. And that's, what's exciting. So let, let me, let me clarify this. Cause I'm not sure. I want to make sure I heard that. So sometimes it can be interface with the person and sometimes it's a true technological interface. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We, what, what do those technological interfaces look like? Or in some regards, do you have an example? I'm just, I'm just curious. Sure. Absolutely. So um, most frequently, so there's other apps, uh, you know, health and well-being apps that are well-known, like weight loss apps. Um, uh, one example, Noom, as an example, uses cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is used in a bunch of different um, areas. As It's basically behavioral change, if you could break it down, right? It's educating the person who's struggling with a condition on how to uh, self-manage that condition, uh, how to look out for the triggers and the the issues that can kind of bring them off kilter, uh, how to manage those issues on a daily basis and what mechanisms they can put in place in their life so that they run into those triggers less frequently. And what we do is, is part of our care. We, we do live one-to-one -one counseling and we even do group therapy as well, but we also deliver modules to patients that um, help them to manage that on their own. And, you know, for some patients right at the beginning of care, not, you know, they just need medicine. <laughs> they just need to feel better, right? No. But as they get further in, three months in, six months in, 
that's when it gets really exciting because then you can start tackling behavior change. How do we modify how you live your life so that you don't put yourself in those positions anymore where you're going to struggle um, uh, or you know what your body is feeling and you know how to react to it um, a, a little bit better. And that's what's really exciting. That's what when we, we have a lot of patients that come back, you know, many, many months later and they're like, this is the first time that I've gone a year, a year and a half in recovery, but I also feel like I have control. I know how, you know, I know what I, I, what I was going through and I can manage it as opposed to just like grin and bear it. Like I think the old, you know, AA, um, NA type of approach was right. Well, it's a, I, I like to define things here on the show. Cognitive behavioral therapy as a psychosocial intervention that aims to reduce symptoms of various mental health conditions, primary depression, primarily depression and anxiety orders, which are offshoots of almost all addiction. Um, Yeah. And then cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the most effective means of treatment for substance abuse and co-occurring mental health disorders. I was then curious what, what a cycle psychosocial intervention was. And uh, an example was it would be a plan that would include more formal uh, interventions, motivational interviewing, community reinforcement approach. That's group therapy, right? Well, it, it bro- broken down even more simplistically in the way we do it, we use feedback informed treatment. So initially, when, when somebody comes into our treatment, we do what's called a biopsychosocial assessment. And that's a fancy way of describing what we do is we interview our patients and we get, we get goals back from them. We talk to them and say, what are you trying to get out of this? Well, I want to feel better. You know, I like to um, be able to keep a job. Um, I, you know, I'm on probation and I don't, I can't go back through that again, right? I lost custody of my children. And we start to log those goals. And then our, a combination of our therapists and then also our case managers then work to help our patients address them over time. You're not going to knock them all out at once. But maybe yeah. the first thing is to not feel like you're nauseous and sick if you don't take fentanyl. Okay, let's yeah. get you in front of a doctor so you can t- start, you can get a prescription for Suboxone, right? So we solve that. After a week, two weeks, maybe a month for some patients, then we start to dig into the deeper goals. And in all of those things, it's not just addressing, it's not like sick care, right? You, you have something wrong, you go to the doctor, they do surgery and you feel better. This is much longer chronic care where we're trying to figure these goals out over time. And that biopsychosocial element of it is incredibly important to lasting recovery. You're not just going to solve it with a magic pill. You need all these things working in unison and you need to be part of it, right? You need to have uh, goals in it and, and, and then we're helping you to achieve those goals. You know, one of the things that uh, a lot of people don't realize when it comes to opioids in the crisis is that a considerable portion of those people uh, weren't drug users or addicts before they were addicted to opioids. They, uh, so I, I once, uh, had, knew a lady that cracked a tooth at a dentist and he gave her some painkillers and she honestly just became hopelessly addicted. That to, was it. Right. To, uh, that was it. Game over. Now, the thing is, is, as you mentioned, like the, the opioid thing, essentially like so many of opioids is, is essentially the same chemical as heroin. And the, the withdrawal effects from that, those people literally get physically sick. That's and right. I mean, like bad, like they, they describe it as, as almost like, 
I mean, like, it's like feeling like you're dying. And so the one way to make that go away is to soothe the addiction. Um, And then there's a lot of pressure on doctors to not keep people on this stuff for too long. And they end up spinning someone out that is that, that, they, they don't wean them off because that's essentially what needs to occur. And next thing you know, these people become drug seekers. They're out buying fentanyl on the street or, or heroin or worse. And man, it gets, it gets ugly in a hurry. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, but as you mentioned, like you can give someone a pill or methadone or something to like wean them off of these things, but you have to change the thought process because it literally rewires your brain. That's right. It does. Yeah. And, and we can't just keep, you know, treating people with developed substance use disorder. Yeah. It doesn't matter their living situation. It doesn't matter if they're living on the street or living, you know, uh, a wealthy lifestyle. Uh, we can't continue to treat it like, um, well, this is just some kind of moral flaw. You know, this is like, uh, there's something wrong with you mentally or no, it can happen to anybody. Um, and, you know, just one kind of quick story, and it really goes to why I got into this in the first place is, um, you know, my co-founder, uh, he, he lost his niece to opioids. She was a Division One college soccer player who got a knee injury, and the rest is history, right? Uh, so that was one kind of thing that occurred around the time that we started building this company. And then the second thing is, I, you know, I, I'm like the opposite. I was a success story. I, I, I've managed ulcerative colitis my entire life. Uh, in 2015, 16, 17, it got really bad to the point that I had to get surgeries to remove my large intestine. Um, and so I was dependent on pain medication uh, for that time period. But I had really, really good health care from Hartford Hospital where they took care of, they, had literally what's called opioid stewardship where they had somebody watching over me and saying, how much of this medicine are you taking? Right. And how can we help you to manage your pain? And I think that that just doesn't occur for a lot of people. You get, you're going to have pain. You're going to sometimes need medicine and opioids still the best medicine for pain. Right. But uh, it's how is it managed? So I kind of saw like, well, I'm from Connecticut and I get the benefit of really good healthcare based on where I live. What is everybody else getting? Um, they're not getting that. Right. Yeah. I want to come back to that and a a couple other Connecticut things. I want to remind everyone, if you're looking for expert software developers, it doesn't need to be a difficult search, especially when you go to fullscale.io where you can build a software team quickly and affordably use the full scale platform to define your technical needs and see what available developers, testers, and leaders are ready to join your team. Go to fullscale.io to learn more. Uh, I mentioned some comments about Connecticut. I, you're in the neighborhood of Purdue Pharma, aren't they? Aren't they wasn't that up in Connecticut? Yep. We're in the uh, neighborhood they, of a lot of the... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they've been well publicized as a leader of getting people addicted in many ways. I've I, My only true exposure to that is watching the many shows and docudramas and everything yeah. that comes on. I haven't uh, found one of those that isn't shocking and disgusting, to be honest. Like, yeah. what the put your word in there, people. And uh, it it blows my mind. It really does. I'm like, wow, we let people do this. Um, And now here's the thing, there's a whole crisis that's come up with it. And, you know, there's 
a matter of dealing with it. The fact that this is moving forward with velocity and growing scares the shit out of me. And I'll be honest, I have two small kids too. And just thinking about, you know, one of the things for those of you out there, um, a lot of people actually began their addictive process right at home in their parents' medicine cabinet. That's right. Right. So like get that stuff out of there. And, uh, um, you know, I've, I've had a, a couple visits to the doctors over the years where I've actually turned down Vicodin and stuff like that. Why? I mean, I have a little bit of addictive personality myself. I've never been like hooked on opioids, but I've been around, I've seen it, uh, yeah. in, in, a, in a, a, other shapes and forms. And it just scares me, you know, yeah. cause like, yeah. I remember it's been, you know, 15 years I, or longer, I, I was a cigarette smoker. And I think about like, that was really hard to quit. Why? Cause you can just have a moment of weakness and drive down to the store. And for at the time for $3, jump right back into that. Then you're right back on the train. And, and the thing is, is there's enough supply of this stuff out on the streets for people to go do the same. And, uh, you know, like, I don't know, man, I've seen YouTube shorts and different content and stuff of people just showing areas of major cities where it's like a zombie apocalypse. And uh, you're like, well, why would we let that happen? We don't have the resources, folks. We don't have like, I mean, I guess it makes sense if one in six or seven people have a similar problem and one third of those people like, and there's the thing, opioids aren't the only thing that are highly addictive. There's a ton of other stuff out there. And as you mentioned, these people have a tendency to, to develop a, a different set of patterns and behavior where, okay, so here's the thing. So you can't get up because you don't feel like you can get up because you're essentially hung over or drowsy or nodding off because of opioids and, but you got to go to work. So next thing you know, you're, you're buying Adderall from someone and it. Yep. it or taking it. And then, and then here's the thing is you're already prone to anxiety. So now that, and if anyone knows anything about anxiety, uppers don't really help it. Um, so now you're like, God, I got to calm back down. It's just this vicious cycle that people get on. I mean, it's kind of like the Elvis scenario, you know, wake up to some amphetamines, go to bed to some, you know, something that's uppers and downers. And, and I mean, there's, there's a lot of famous people like, I mean, Prince died in an elevator in his own home in Minnesota from a fentanyl overdose. Michael Jackson did too. Like they don't publicize that enough. Like that guy actually had like a personal doctor that was injecting him with that stuff every night. Like it's wild, like what's out there and what people let things do. So folks have a heart. It's fellow man out a little bit. Look, I think the, the, the thing you, you said that resonates is, is, you know, it's yeah, it's, it starts in the medicine cabinet, right. Or it starts in, in, benign ways it's like a lot of people don't recognize like there's a link between it's the same thing with smoking cigarettes as it is with almost any other you know addictive there's a substance it has a chemical reaction in your brain it makes you feel a certain way when you don't have it in your body you crave it or you feel sick you don't feel right so you do it again right and it's so it's the same thing the issue i think the biggest issue is we're not getting to it early when you can get control over it. Um, Believe it or not, I know people who use illicit drugs like opioids safely and in moderation. I know that's a wild concept to think of, but it does exist. 
we're just not getting to people early enough to educate them to treat their mild substance use disorder, maybe at primary care and places like that, and get control over it so that it goes, it doesn't go from, you know, the kind of the age old thing is like somebody who needs a glass of wine every night or needs to have a bottle of wine on a Friday to unwind. And then it just takes control, right? And it just keeps going and going. And before you know it, you need it to wake up and get yourself going. And that's when it's out of control. We should be addressing it and educating and treating people much earlier so that we don't produce as many people that get to that point. And that's that's at the heart of what we're doing is just trying to work upstream to get to that point. Um, you know, and we're starting to get there, but it's bad. You know, it's bad out there. And uh, it's going to take a, a, a lot of companies like us, I think, um, or a lot of health systems to to say, hey, we, we want to buy into this and and put a solution in front of people much earlier. Do, do you feel that the, the insurance community, like it seems to me like it'd be in their vested interest to not have a bunch of drug addicts running around. Um, do they do they seem to support this or is it or was it slow to adopt? Like what's been one of the well, harder things about getting this out into out into the world? Yeah. Um, my friends at health plans, uh, put your earmuffs on for a second. Um, uh, you know, look, at the end of the day, health insurance cares about one thing. That's cost savings. Right. How to turn a profit. It's just a fact of life. And if you work for health insurance and you don't understand that, you're naive. Um, the reality is, is that you can actually align their incentive or their drive to to get health savings with providing better, more and better substance use treatment. We can show, and, and this is what we've invested in, is we have so much data behind our platform and we have a data warehouse with millions of data points. So we can show that we keep people out of higher cost care, like emergency room visits and urgent care visits. Those costs, you know, you, you go to an ER one time, it's $3,500 to the health plan. Um, and maybe some of it comes out of the patient's pocket, but, you know, they get hit. So if you're outside of healthcare and the only time you go to get help is when you go to the ER, um, that costs the health plan a lot of money. And, you know, this, the, the going statistics are that people with substance use disorder cost health plans 21 times more than the average member. So it, there's easy alignment there. So we are starting to make that headway with the health plans by just showing them, hey, look, we're saving you money. Pay for our, pay for what we do because we can save you money. And, and that's helped. Um, and uh, I do think that, that to get this really normalized and in a better place, we got to stop with the all cash, like a lot of rehab and all that is like, hey, you got to pay cash. You have to have a family member pay for it. Um, that just well, that's not possible it's just in, not lot, right. in like so many scenarios. I mean, uh, yeah. that's, yeah, yeah. That's, so, that's, I mean, there's some, so we could go down a socioeconomic rabbit hole that would require like a whole nother series on this show to yeah. cover part of it. Well, and I, I think the big thing for health plan going back to what they care about is like, they don't want attrition. They don't want people to leave jobs and everything else. Cause then they lose a member that's paying a premium. Uh, what they should be invested in is save is saving money by aligning, you know, incentives with us. And, and um, so that's what, we, that's the heavy lift that is a big part of my job. It's, um, well, talking about the tech of tech that helps wellness and, and well-being. what's been the hard part about building this platform? 
Yeah. So the honestly, never been like the business part and like, I meant, I'm true. mean like the tech part of it. Like yeah. what, what's been the real challenge to overcome? Well, the biggest challenge was when we first went out to do this, we thought, Oh, you know what? We'll just adopt a telemedicine out of the box telemedicine platform. You know, maybe we can use our electronic medical record. They, a lot of them have, this was before COVID where it really took off. Um, but you know, we said, Oh, we'll just, you know, we'll get our MVP out with an out-of-the-box solution. Well, then we went and tried to do that, and we realized that they were all inadequate for what our patients needed. Um, you know, they didn't have robust apps for the patient to access their care. The, those apps weren't designed simply or light on the phone for patients. Like, we have patients that have limited data plans, right? Yeah. We have patients that have third-grade reading level. Um, the bandwidth, not to mention in some spots, yeah. all these considerations that as we got into it, we realized, you know what, we got to build our own platform. So what ends up happening is even though at our heart, we're a services company, we're also a software company. And so we had to build out a team to, um, to develop software for us that fits our need. And then also plays nice with our partners and integrates and is able to pass data back and forth. All right, my and you know, you don't need to comment on this because I don't want to get you too far down. But my guess is that integrating with every single insurance platform is a separate project. Meaning, like I, I'm, you know, I'm the CEO and, and found co-founder at Fullscale, and I talk to a lot of clients that have med and health tech or insurance tech or loan tech or any of that. And I mean, that's like you can look at like really, really well-known software platforms and things like Zapier might create a, a you know, a, an API hub, but for the most part to dial in. And, and so an API is essentially a drawbridge into someone else's uh, uh, system or platform and everyone's got a different thing. And that, I know that that, that is a, an interesting scenario because when you talk about scaling, you're like, hey, we got to connect to more healthcare providers. Well, there's a lot of them. Yep. And that's a lot of integration. It's a lot of upkeep. It's a lot of, it's a lot of resources and, uh, yep. and that can, that can be a challenge. And then not to mention the fact that uh, you got to keep that data sealed up. Like, you know, yep. if you're not aware, HIPAA, H-I-P-A-A, I think that's how you got it. Now, it's not, wouldn't have been my first guess, but that is that those are the laws and regulations that uh, governed the uh, security of your data. Now here's the thing is like, it's not in your, if you have a problem or a disease or anything and like you, like you don't, you don't want that data floating around out there because you may end up stigmatized. And it's also not the reason that you're giving it up. So yeah, there's a lot, there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of changing regulation. And actually right before I recorded this show, I was recording a, another one with a, with a cybersecurity company that was talking about your, you know, personal PII, personal identification information or something. Personally like that. identifying information. Yes. yes. He said, PII. I was like, wait, stop. What is that? And, but, but, you know, you talk about like, if you're a, if you're a, well, first off uh, services like this, and telehealth is a great way to offer, uh, and it can be a real afford, give you some affordable options to um, offer uh, uh, coverage for your employees if you're an early stage company, um, you know, so that that's a, a, a good option. But yeah, there's like, you know, it's, today especially has been a reminder of 
all the data, all the protection. And here's the thing is like the same way there, there, this is kind of like keeping up with the U S tax code, which literally comes in volumes. It comes in federal form. It comes in state form and you cannot keep up with it humanly. So yeah, there's a lot to, a lot to deal with there. Um, no, it's, it's the same in healthcare and there's an added layer of scrutiny with virtual health. I think just cause it's new and yeah. you know, I mean, look, the reality is every hospital, it has all of your data in the cloud as well. You know, it's not like we're any different in that regard, but there's a layer of scrutiny or maybe, um, you know, skepticism, right? Okay, small startup, how, how seriously do they take protecting your health information? And for us, it's like paramount. It's just like mission yeah. critical. We cannot well, survive. It's game, it can be game over if you miss it. it. And that's what I was talking about in my prior recording. I was like, for those of you listening, like, that's not where you want to hear wah, 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 yeah, wah, 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 whatever sound it makes when you're out of guys on Pac-Man or gals on yeah. this Pac-Man. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and the only other thing I would just add is, is I think in general, um, you know, healthcare is really, really complex and, and, and challenging. It's not for the faint of heart. But at the same time, we need more smart people that are willing to do that hard work. They want to go in and figure out really exciting solutions, or in some cases, ways to better protect our health information and 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 keep it secure. That's critical. Um, you know, healthcare. I think um, there's so much focus on it during COVID, and what happened is actually uh, people that worked in healthcare just got burnt out, and we're looking yeah. for ways out. Uh, my um, sister and her husband are in that boat, and my sister's an anesthesiologist, so I've had oh, this. Wow. I've had this discussion with her a lot and, oh man, the, the, the stress and the pressure on, on them, especially during the pandemic was, was really intense. Uh, uh, do you think, do you think, I personally believe that the pandemic uh, vaulted tele everything forward like a decade, like the adoption of it, because it just forced so many people to try Zoom or try something tele or realize like, oh, wow, there might be a better way. Did, did, did that, do you feel like that, that moved pursue care forward and like, did it accelerate adoption or? Yeah. Look, I've been doing telemedicine projects since before we called it telemedicine. So yeah. I got my start. Uh, uh, I'm not an engineer by training, but kind of became one in healthcare and now sit on the board of an engineering school. But, um, uh, first thing I did in, in telemedicine was in the pharmacy space, trying to make it so you don't have to go to the pharmacy. You just talk yeah. to a pharmacist through a kiosk that we would put at points of care and then go home and we deliver the meds, right? And so I've been at it for a long time. In 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19 even, uh, most average Americans didn't know really know what telemedicine is. Unless you did, maybe you did a visit with Teladoc when your kid was sick or something like that. In 2020, everybody knew what telemedicine and telehealth yeah. is, and that's the biggest change. And so that normalization has helped us dramatically because we don't have to explain. There's not a like, is this less than? Is this you know? It's more so now, like, hey, actually, this is very convenient. This makes my life easier. Yeah. I don't have to go to the. Do I can do this yes. visit in my car. You know. Um, yeah, I, love, I love that, uh, especially parent teacher conferences. I have two small children and I'm like, 
so I don't have to personally face you and eat the shame of all the <laughs> dumb stuff my kids did in your class. Thank you so much. You know, it says, cause I noticed that, that during those times that I, I, we accidentally lose my video feed. That's cause I'm turning it off while I go, Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now, speaking I just, of, I just did it. I get it. Our, <laughs> although our son's in kindergarten, so everything is still like uh, you know. Well, that's the, those are the years where like common sense doesn't exist when you're five. Yeah. You know. So like, yeah. So some of it's like, I, 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 yeah. Now speaking of engineers, if you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders, full scale can help. We have the people, the platform, and the processes to help you build and manage a team of experts. All you need to do is go to fullscale.io, answer a few questions, and let our platform match you up with fully vetted, highly experienced software engineers, testers, and leaders at full scale. We specialize in building long-term teams that work only for you. Learn more when you visit fullscale.io. I got to say, my ad reads keep saying they, and I'm like, well, I'm the founder of this company, so I think I need to substitute we in there. I, I think that, yeah, maybe built for my other hosts that don't work at Fullscale. Now, uh, you know, speaking of founders and everything else, it's time for the Founders Freestyle, which is what I, which is how I like to end my shows when I'm on with another founder. Uh, you know, I mean, o overall, you know, and once again with me today, Nick Merc Mercadante, I had to try, I had to spell, I spelled that phonetically people uh, on the way out because I wanted to, on the way in because I wanted to get that right. Uh, next to the founder and CEO at Pursue Care, there's a link in the show notes, pursuecare.com. There's a link to full scale and maybe a couple other links. Who knows? Uh, you know, Nick, Nick on, the, on the way out, what would you like to say to all the hustlers out there? Look, I think the main thing is, um, you know, whether you're a hustler, entrepreneur, or you, you want to be, is you have to find, you have to have two things converge. One is there has to be a need for whatever your solution is. You really got to do the research and say, what, what do key stakeholders need and actually go after something that they need, right? In whatever the addressable market is that you're going after. It doesn't matter healthcare or otherwise. But the second most important thing is it has to be something that you're passionate about, truly passionate about. And maybe, you know, for me in healthcare, I, like I said, I'm a healthcare lifer. I believe in providing, you know, better healthcare and I want to do that. Oh, look, here's live uh, podcast. I got my kids coming in from after school. That's happened several times. So but, no worries there, yeah. But I think what's most critical is that you are truly a believer in uh, what you're doing, that it's something that you want, that you're excited about getting out of bed for every day. Because uh, if not, well, guess what? Doing a startup is a grind and yep. uh, you're not going to get through that grind if you don't love it. Well, Nick, thanks for confirming what I've said about 500 times on this show over the last <laughs> six years is if you're not passionate about the business that you're starting, you're probably going to quit. I mean, because there's the thing is there are, uh, you know, I define self-discipline as doing the things that you need to do the most at the times you want to do them the least. Um, and when you're passionate about what you're doing, it doesn't feel like a job. Um, you know, I also want to thank you uh, for what you're doing. Um, I always want to take a couple minutes and thank founders and people that come on the show that are solving the tough problems that affect us all. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not addicted to anything. Yeah, but you know someone that is. Yeah, bring them in. Bring them in. Let's bring them in. Hey, Sam, you want to say hi? Your What's your name, your name, buddy? I got another thing with the same name for Miss T. All right, look. Hey, look. 
We got crayons. We got all sorts of stuff. Oh, this is right another one from Oh, yeah? Well, tell us your name. What's your first name, dude? What's your name, Sam? I just said it. <laughs> Sam? Is your name Sam? Well, congratulations on being on your very first podcast, Sam. You know, we've had people listen to this show in 194 countries. So whatever you're getting ready to draw with those crayons and build with that Play-Doh, you might become famous afterward. Just keep solving problems. So, yeah. What do you think about that, Sam? Sounds good. Sam, do, will you do me a favor and say bye-bye to all of our listeners? Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.